Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, everybody, this episode of the podcast brought to you by our friends at Cool Water Bikes, a full-service shop specializing in helping at-risk and homeless youth to get back on their feet, learn a trade, and experience the joy of the bicycle. Check out their website at coolwaterbikes.org. Make a donation, buy something for your cycling habit, or visit them in Spokane. If you're ever in Spokane, Washington, my little hometown of broadcasting, 224 South Howard. They're doing a lot of great things over there. Check them out. Purchase something. Hell, even purchase a water bottle and a T-shirt. It'll help them all. Help them all do a lot of great work. So let's do this. Stephen Roche on the Pack Filler Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast that still misses exposed cable routing and down tube shifters. I'm going to pause for effect on that because if you know what I'm talking about. I'm Pat Bolger in the Pack Village Studios. It's getting better. Went out for a rain ride yesterday. I am a bad, bad mother. Trying to say the F word less in my life. I just think it makes me sound stupid when I say it so much. And you know, if you overuse it, it just loses its effect. So I'm gonna try and say it less. Let's see if I can do it. I don't know if I can make it very long. Beautiful three hour ride in the rain yesterday, you guys. Oh, man. Actually, it wasn't all rain, or I would have pussied out and stayed home. I left the house and it was dry. You know those rides. Still kind of overcast. Yeah, and then it really started raining. And at one point, it got so bad that it was it was that just, oh my God, I am soaked to the core kind of a thing. But screw it, I was already wet enough. It's not like I was going to get any wetter. So I went out and did the rest of the ride. It was beautiful. Came home, ruined a pair of socks, although I got them in the wash right now. But we'll see. You know, I was the idiot who wore the white socks. And road grime just gets all over, you know, it's, it's flying all over the place. I was even riding by myself, but still just covered in, in just road grime like crazy. Even tasting the road grime off of my own tires, I think. They should make flavored tires simply for the fact that when you ride in the rain, you might be able to eat some road grime that has a better flavor than what it normally tastes like. So anyway, I digress. So, uh, yeah. Stephen Roche today, you guys. Stephen effing Roche. This one took a while to make happen. Started out with a lot of reaching out over email and then a pretty steady correspondence with who I think was Stephen's assistant. Either that or, you know, Stephen's got a second 
email account that he's you know doing all his correspondence. No, I'm kidding. But uh, very, very kind and courteous person I, I got to deal with. And then finding out when he was available, when he's not available. And then, of course, the time change calculator comes out. I am not sure why I have such a horrid time figuring out time changes. I double check everything, you guys. And then I still sit up at night convinced that somebody like Stephen Roche is sitting by his phone waiting for me to call like that would ever happen. And then I eventually do call thinking I'm right, right on time, only to be cursed out for being an unprofessional dickhead by calling him day late and 4 a.m. his time. I have done this before. I have made these mistakes before, and I'm terrified to repeat them. Lost an interview once because I called the wrong day. The guy was in, in Tokyo, or no, uh, hell, I can't remember where he was. But I, I called the wrong day. Right time, wrong day. So I'm really shitty at this. And that's the last thing I wanted to do is insult a guy like Steven. Besides, I'm sure he's not as crude as I am, but have you ever heard an Irishman use the F word? It's a beautiful thing. It's a noun. It's a verb. It's an adjective. It's a conjunction. It's 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 a beautiful thing. And I, I think Steven's too classy to do that. Maybe that's why I'm trying to stop using the F-bomb so much. We'll see. That word is like cigarettes to me. I just used it too much, and no, I can't get enough. Just one more. Give you another hit. I promise I'll quit after this one. Switch to menthols so nobody will bum them off of me. So anyway, for those of you either too young to have been around in 1987 or simply not interested in cycling at the time, I will forgive you. I'm not some retro elitist. And I hope you're not one of those born-again cyclists who got into the sport in the late 90s or even the 2000s and claim to know more than I do simply because you read cycling news and follow Cavendish on Twitter. Or Cavendish's wife. Is it a wife or a girlfriend? I don't know. Peter Todd. <laughs> I know that and I'm making fun of you guys. But anyway, Stephen Roche made me cry in 1987. He won the Giro, he won the Tour, and he won the Worlds in the same year. Always a champion in my book. He was always up there. He was always, you know, highly competitive. But 87 made him a legend. I know you're thinking I'm one of these guys living in the past, but if you were around in 87, if you were involved in cycling, oh, God, you probably remember if you were on my side of the pond over here, if you remember getting your copy of Velo News. Or winning, I can't recall, although I bet I do still have that copy somewhere, <laughs> whichever one it is. And seeing Stephen on the cover, arms aloft, the Irish Green World's kit, shouting in victories he crossed the line, I actually teared up, you guys. No, like Shawshank Redemption teared up. Yeah, the guys know what I'm talking about, Shawshank, dude. So here I am. Years later, a has-been that can't climb, hosting a podcast in his basement, sitting in front of a space heater with enough wires surrounding me to quite possibly open a satellite radio shack. And I get to call Stephen Roche at home. At first, when I called him, he was busy doing something. I think he was cleaning out his freaking garage. People like this don't clean out their garages. What's he throwing out? One of those beautiful bikes? Those Pinarellos? What is it? Tricolored Pinarello? I can't. God, I'm, I'm flaking out. All the classic guys are yelling at me right now. He had Peugeot on his shorts, but that was contractual. He had to do that. He didn't ride Peugeots when he rode for Carrera. But I get to talk to this guy for 50 minutes. I imagine him sitting in a high back chair somewhere, you know. He wouldn't smoke a pipe because he still rides. I think I danced a jig afterwards, you guys. And I'm not insulting anybody who has or will be on this show. It's just sometimes there well, there are some amazing people who have been on this show and, and, and will hopefully be on this show that we're lining up. But in 1987, I was 18. Yeah, you can do the math now. I dreamed of being a bike racer. I cut out pictures of this guy and put them on my wall in my bedroom. 
No, I didn't use them for that. So this was kind of a big deal. In case you didn't know, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was good for me. So, enough of the part of the podcast you most likely fast forward through anyway. I think it's probably time we listen to the interview with Stephen. Before we do, however, you know what I got to do. I got to take a second and thank Velo Jerseys. Brilliantly done retro style kits, modern craftsmanship. In case you didn't know, those were the socks I was wearing on my ride yesterday. And I hope they come out clean again because they were white. And I finally got the socks that are a little higher to match that style code. You know, they're the higher socks, but they're not the super tall ones that I think are dorky anyway. I've had a lot of the lower ones. Not the, not the ones that are no seams, but just a little higher than that. And I think they're a little too low. So I was happy to have these new socks. And so I went out in the rain and I think I might have ruined them. We'll have to see. Hopefully my washing machine is working its magic. Velo jerseys are the best materials and workmanship, allowing you to squeeze your washed up body into jersey shorts and socks of the hats of your heroes. They didn't want me they didn't know I was gonna call you guys washed up, but let's admit it. A lot of us just want those cool kids to dream dream that we were Greg LeMond, that we were Laurent Fignon, that we were Bernardino, that we were Eddie Merckx, Freddie Mertens, Stephen Roche. History is Velo. Velo is now. Hey, be sure to head on over to VeloJerseys.com. Check out their offerings. When ordered, do use the word, all one word, all lowercase, Patrick Filler to get 15% off of your order. Thanks for ranking us on iTunes. Thanks for keeping the correspondence going up with me. Let me know what you think. Let me know who you think. And without further ado, let's talk to Stephen Rowe. All right, everybody. Today's guest truly needs no introduction, although I'm going to give him one. If you were a cyclist in the 80s and 90s, you knew this man's name. If you had a brain, read a cycling publication, or turned on the TV in 1987, you definitely know who this is. Two riders have won the cycling's triple crown, the Giro, the Tour, and the World Championships, and today's guest is one of those two riders who did that. Please welcome to the show the great Stephen Roche. Stephen, how are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Fine. Great to be on the show. Thank you. Hey, you know, I tend to start these interviews with a bit of perspective, but I really don't think we need that here. Um, A lot of my listeners are going to know who you are. Your career is definitely one for the Hall of Fame. And I'm sure 1987 is something that comes up a lot to you. And and before I even go, are, are you tired of talking about 1987 yet? Um, no, I mean, the day I get tired is going to be difficult, very difficult because, um, you know, the, the memories live on yeah. and, um, I suppose, uh, the bottom line of my business today, a lot of it is based around 87, but it's also based around my whole career, my whole life. So, yes. and 87 is only part of that journey, you know, so, um, I think you never get tired of it. You, it, it what it's kind of makes me live today. Part of what makes me live today, makes me living today. And, um, I think anybody that asks questions, uh, asking the questions, got to want an answer. So uh, obviously all the questions haven't been answered yet, or in one way or another. So um, no, to answer your question, no, I don't get tired of it at all, at all. Good good to hear. Because to to be honest, to win the Giro Tour double is one thing, and that is an amazing feat. And to add in a rainbow jersey to it is is unheard of in my perspective. Um, Do you think the double, let alone the triple, can ever be done again in current cycling? Um, yes, of course. I think it can be done, of course, yeah. But, um, you know, uh, there's so many things that have to come together yeah. for it all to work out. Like, for example, when you have a Giro or a Tour win, uh, for example, it's normally a stage race rider, gets over mountains, right, goes as well in time trials, um, and it's very endurance over three weeks, three periods. Then you get to the World Championships. If you get a World Championship that's flat, the guy that's won... Uh, the tours is generally not a fabulous sprinter. Yeah. So you come against the guys like Cavendish and these guys. You know, you just um, you can't go get go against them in the sprints. Um, I was very lucky in, in my my year that the two tours. Okay, I won them. And then when I went to the World Championships, the circuit was supposed to be a relatively flat circuit, but in fact it was a it was um, relatively flat. But when you go over those kind of hills, or what they were calling kind of. Uh, false flats 
uh, they became mountains after riding over them for 22 times. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was the, the real team that helped me win my, my triple because um, the, the itinerary actually suited me. Uh, and also, you know, I, there was the weather conditions suited me as well because um, I was very, very tired after my Giro on tour. Oh, yeah. And had I gone to the world and had really hot weather as they had the week previous to the World Championships, I would have been on my knees because I wouldn't have been able to cope with the, the hot weather. Where in fact it was very, very cold, wet, windy, and miserable uh, for the first kind of six hours of the race. So that actually um, uh, helped me, and that it kept me kind of. I didn't actually overheat. I was actually, um, you know, I kept uh, kept my powder dry, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, so when it came to the final, then the final, the final couple of laps, I still had something to go. You know, I had the stamina from doing my two big tours, yeah. and. Um, and of course, then the, the, the fact that it wasn't that warm uh, suited me a lot. So I had everything, all the ingredients were there to um, to help me win my, my three, which is not always the, f- the same in today's racing. Yeah. Well, I, I can just imagine the mental strain that had to be in there. I mean, most, most riders would have been done by that point of the season, especially with the efforts you had to put through for the, for that Giro and that Tour. Well, to be honest with you, like, I, I went to the, to the world. Um, with the intention to arrive for Sean Kelly because um, Sean had a, a, a mishap in the Tour de France. He fell and broke his collarbone. He was getting back on then with the hope of winning the world because everybody was saying, oh, the world is going to be relatively flat, so it should suit Sean Kelly. So yeah. Sean and myself being Irish, we built everything up so that we get Sean in a, in a winning position in the world. So I went to the world with, in my own mind, no pressure at all because everybody had said this... Um, this uh, World Championship circuit is for Sean Kelly. This World Championship circuit is for sprinters. Um, Stephen Roach, anyway, is one of his two big tours, and he's so, so exhausted. He's not going to be in there in the final shakeup. So um, I had no pressure at all. And it was only when I arrived down to the circuit the two days before, and I went around it for the first time, I said, gosh, uh, this ain't no flat circuit. It's flat-ish, <laughs> yes when you're doing it once. Yeah. But going around at 22 times where there's two climbs or two false flats every time, oh, man. Um, after 21 laps of the circuit, those little kind of false flats became, you know, relatively good climbs. Yeah. So, um, like, that, it was only then I got into the skin of a potential winner because um, until then I, I had no pressure and everybody was saying it's for a sprinter. So I didn't even have myself in there as a, as a potential winner. I was there to ride for Sean. So, that helped me a lot in my uh, in my winning strike. So you mentioned Sean, and you guys. Yes, there were several other riders involved at the time, but I I honestly feel in my heart of hearts, you and Sean definitely brought Irish cycling to the global stage. Um, what was it like entering that top tier of cycling for you guys at that time? Was it inviting? Was was Irish cycling known of? And how was that to enter that level? Well, um, you know, it was very um, courageous on our behalf, I think, if I say so. <laughs> because, um, I mean, there was, uh, well, Sean went to cross first. Yeah. And uh, he was doing okay. He was a lead-out man for, for Eddie Mar- Freddie Martins initially. And doing quite well, but, you know, not, uh, not getting great results, but just, uh, just being in there. And then when I decided to go to France then for the preparation for the Olympics in 1980, um, I always remember my parents having a... Uh, it was kind of a tea for myself and friends this, the day before I went. Yeah. And um, a friend, a very good friend of mine, uh, said to me, Stephen, a lot of people think that you're going to go to France and the only tour you're going to ride is around the Eiffel Tower and then you've got to come home again. <laughs> so can you just prove these people wrong? And it doesn't matter what happens, you're staying there for a year, you go to the Olympics, you do whatever has to be done before and after, but don't come home um uh, for at least the year, so that was thirty five years ago <laughs> but um uh but you know it was um and, and it was very difficult for for the rookies going over there like ourselves yeah. Seth and Sean and um, the english speaking writers at the millers uh Sean Yates yeah. Graham Jones Paul Sherwin we were on a bit of an edge for a long time because we were always seen to be the the um the foreigners coming in and eating the uh the, the, the French people's bread, so to speak, because um, there are only so many jobs every year for the, for the amateurs going professional. And in the club that we were all in, there was like six pros, six amateurs going pro every year, wow. and four, sometimes five of them were English-speaking. 
So, of course, the French people, when they saw you coming in, straight, a, straight away, they looked at you upon a guy that's going to, you know, yeah. that's going to be kind of taking their bread and butter and uh, taking potentially their jobs away. So um, it was very difficult to, um, to, to master initially because we're always looked upon as being the, the guys are coming in and going to take in their place. Yeah. So um, it was hard, and I must say that those famous words that were ringing in my ear all the time, you know, uh, Stephen, don't come home, you know, <laughs> um, it did help me on more than one occasion, because um, as you can imagine, it was lonely. I was living in an apartment with uh, five other guys, and because I was last in, I got the last bed, and the last bed was in the sitting room. Okay. So it meant that every day, uh, guys were coming and going, and even though I tried to get to sleep some evenings early, uh, there was always somebody coming in late. Yeah. So um, I was being disturbed by it. So the first few months were, um, you know, very, very difficult. Well, you know, and this is so great to hear because everybody on, on from our perspective, from the fans' perspective, sees this as this, this romantic, glorified life that you guys are going over there and living, and everybody has these dreams of doing these types of things. And then to hear having to sleep in a sitting room and to hear all these struggles and things that you guys had to go through. Um, was that, that cultural shift to, to moving to France and trying to struggle for jobs, was that one of what you would see the hardest things transitioning into the pro peloton, or were there other ones that were involved? Um, you've got a language barrier, first of all, which wasn't very easy to master. Um, but then the, the, the hard part was trying to be accepted because um, it's easier today because it's much more international. Yeah. But, and, and you're accepted. Uh, in our day, the language was French. And if you spoke English, nobody spoke to you. <laughs> so um, it was very hard. Um, but you know, the, all, everything was a challenge. You, you go to the races and you have to ride for a French guy. Um, you want to ride for yourself and do your own thing, so you got to be very careful to do it when the other French guy is, you know, not capable of doing better than you. So I was very lucky because I, um, I got results uh, straight away. And by, by one state, ignoring team orders, like, you know, uh, uh, I was a friend of mine, a teammate up, 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 up the road, and I was told, um, I told, okay, it wouldn't be great now if I could get across to him. And I was halfway across to him, my team car came up and Stephen, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to get, get across to uh, Jacko. And he says, uh, well, Stephen, you know, Jacko doesn't need you. He's on his own. He's going to win. I said, yeah, but I can maybe catch him and become second. Yeah. He says, no, 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 back in the bunch. And he drove me off the road. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was uh, telling me, Stephen, there's team orders. And uh, the orders, there's one guy in the front. We don't take any risks, you know? Yeah. So, um, but then, you know, then it came to a very, very hard race down here in France, then, like, it came to Paris, um, Paris-Roubaix, for example. Yeah. And, um... Uh, route to the France, like good stage races, and uh, when the last man in the climbs, all of a sudden you get a bit of recognition because um, uh, it isn't like riding in the flat where everybody can get shelter. When you're riding in the climbs and you're the last man of your team, they can't say we're even wait for somebody else. So um, when you're when you're up there with the front guys, you know. So I, I kind of was very lucky that um, with that bit of recognition, it did help me um, kind of achieve kind of fairly good st- status in my team. And a lot of recognition, and then of course, uh, when you're winning, it helps because everybody looks at the at the end of the month the, the prize money. Yeah. Even though there wasn't very much prize money, uh, a lot of these guys at the time were their 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 their, their, their monthly uh, payroll was um, was a little slightly enhanced by the the prize money that would be earning uh, in the races. So if I was capable of winning a race, I, I I often got a bit of a helping hand from some of the guys. Because in you well, okay, well, if Stephen won, it's, uh, it's more in the kitty at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in, we've, it's well documented some of the difficulties you've had with inner team battles, um, especially in that Giro in 87, um, as well with the Tifosi, with the fans involved. Um, and this is obviously before car radios and things like that, where you had immediate conversation with the team uh, directors and things like that. Um, what. Was it just by feel, especially in that in that year in, in in at the Giro in '87 that you decided to kind of take things upon yourself and 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 take command of the race? Was that something you just kind of went by feel, or was it pre planned, or how did it go? No, it's a, it's a long, long story, but I think that um, you know, um, when people said that I attacked and everything else, you know, yeah. whereas you know, without trying to defend myself. It depends on your on everyone's interpretation of attacking. Oh yeah. Like I actually, you know, I 
I realized that um, uh, Vicentini wanted me to write for him. Yeah. Uh, he had, hadn't written for me at all in the first uh, seven or eight days. He wrote more against me than with me. Um, and when he finally got to Jersey, he said publicly that, okay, well, uh, Stephen's going to write for me here. I'm not going to the tour. I'm going to the beach. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, well, at least, at least he's honest. Telling me, Stephen, write for me now, but it's going to be no payback. Wow. So, um, and I felt I didn't even, didn't owe him much because he didn't, um, didn't interact with me. And um, he didn't uh, help me at all when I, had, when I had the pink jersey for the first eight days of, of the Giro. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, were, I became, when I lost the jersey to him, I became a, a teammate of Fritantini's. And, um, you know, if I had been called, you know, uh, Jack Bush or whatever, <laughs> this thing would never have happened because I would have been seen to be defending my uh, leader's jersey because um, it would have meant there was three guys at the road, there was no Carrera up there, which meant that Carrera had to ride behind the group in front. Yeah. So when we got over the top of this climb, I just went down to the descent. Okay, I knew what I was doing, okay? I'm not saying I was naive and, you know, I didn't do it purposely. I did. I knew what I was doing. I went down to the descent extremely fast. Whereas if indeed he could have followed me, if he could have followed me, <laughs> but he couldn't follow me, like many, many, many others couldn't follow me. Yeah. And then I caught the group, that group in front of me. So I, no one shouted at me, Stephen, slow up, uh, you know? Yeah. But I did it. I didn't hear them. Or maybe I didn't want to hear them. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, uh, I was doing my, my team work by joining that front group, which meant that my team now is secure behind. They haven't got to ride. Then you might say, well, Stephen, those three guys weren't dangerous on GC. Yes, I understand that. Yeah. But still, if some of the other teams want to win the stage, they'll have to ride those three guys down if they want to win the stage. Whereas, if Carrera hadn't got a man in the front, it would have meant that Carrera would have had to ride. That was my, that's my argument, right? Yeah. Um, but then, but which is illogical, and it's totally, for me, it's totally, you know, genuine. And um, yes, I did, you know, uh, feel that if I got a gap, okay, Vizantini couldn't ride. So it was a bit suicidal for me, because knowing there's a final climb at the end, if I blow all my brains out in the first in the, in, in, the, in the middle of two climbs and the catching of the final climb, I might lose more time to Byzantini and then lose my, my Giro forever. So it was a bit of a gamble. Yeah. But what really, really, really angered me and really got my blood boiling was when I, the car came up and told me that Roberto was riding behind me. And I said, well, you know, please, you know, um, Roberto, uh, uh, he shouldn't be riding behind me because all I'm doing is... Um, defend me for the team, yeah. uh, tell Roberto to basically back off and um, wait till the Bianchis or the Panasonics ride. And the car, said, the car said to me, Stephen, you don't understand, there's the biggest group behind the six riders. They're everywhere. You went down to the descent so quickly and so fast. They're all over the place. They're never going to get organized. I said, okay, that's great. Well, you know, Carrera still wins the zero. Yeah. So, no, Stephen, don't understand. you got to wait. I said, no. I tell Roberto to stop and I'll stop, but if Roberto keeps riding, I'm riding. Wow. So um, that was it, and we down the gauntlet. And uh, I was caught on the final climb, but I, I dug energy out of it unaware. <laughs> and um, my my teammate Eddie Shipper says to me, Stephen, Stephen, uh, Roberto is uh, he's blowing. You got to hang in here. This is the day you win the Giro. So I hung in and uh, got to finally get over the top of the hill just behind Tony Rominger and it was Steve Bauer, yeah. one or two others. And uh, I ended up um, um, finishing whatever I finished up, but I ended up take, uh, taking over the pink jersey from Byzantini. But just being one second to um, uh, Tony Rominger. Yeah. So, like if Tony Rominger had of uh, being a second or two faster on the stage, he would have gotten that pink jersey. And maybe I might have been sent home that night because the, all the big um, bosses of Carrera were all there to finish waiting to see Vizantini. And, uh, of course, Vizantini wasn't very, very, very polite uh, towards me. And um, for political, political reasons, they might have just decided to send me home. But because I had the pink jersey on my back and Vizantini had lost six minutes, they, um, they decided to keep me on. <laughs> 
So it was a very, very difficult couple of days after, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. You're you're a gambling man, I can see. Well, and I mean, it's not like that was the first experience. I do recall from 85, even though you weren't directly involved in it, you were a part of another in-team fight dealing with uh, Bernardino and Greg LeMond in that tour stage to lose Artie Den, I, I do recall, when they were exactly. battling back and forth. So this isn't something that exactly. is just rare. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the beauty of not having radios, you know. I mean, yeah. um, that particular day in the early then, I would have attacked as a way with Le Monde, and Le Monde was defending for Hino. Yeah. And um, his boss uh, was saying, listen, you don't fight with Roach, because Roach is lying third overall on GC. So we don't want to kind of blow out Hino. Hino has to have his chance of winning still. So um, we just rode, and then Greg, of course, I kept riding 80% because Greg kept attacking me. Yeah. So um, but I was going to say, okay, well, Greg, you know, you keep going, but I'm not, not, not letting you away. Because, but the, the team car was telling us he knew it was at two minutes. But in actual fact, the team car was lying, of course, tactically, you know, yeah. because they were, he knew was coming back at us. Where I was kind of quite comfortable, thinking, okay, he knew said at two minutes, Le Monde is here. If I can hold on to Le Monde here, or don't let him away from me, I have a chance of beating him in the final time trial, and maybe winning the tour. Yeah. But he knew has gone, two minutes. But in fact, he knew was closing on us all the time. And uh, which I didn't know, and he caught us like not far from the finish. But um, you know, then it was of course there was a talk then about Greg and uh, and he you know having having a fight. But I mean the thing was um, uh, I wasn't gonna let let Greg go anyway, you know. Yeah. So um, but if Greg had worked with me, then definitely we would have pulled away from uh, from Hino, and maybe Greg could have won the tour maybe, and Hino you know might have lost the tour, but. Um, it was a uh, it was a bit controversial, right? Yeah, but I'm controversial on the on the other side. I was I was only a spectator. No, I, yeah, exactly. You weren't the instigator per se. So yeah, it, it, within that year, obviously of of the, of winning the Giro in the Tour, you had incredible challenges on each one. With the Giro being um, very kind of a team division, you maybe had I, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, one or two people on the team in support for you. And with the tour requiring, especially that one specific day that you had to just completely bury yourself, um, was was the tour or the Giro harder for you that year? Could you pick one over the other in terms of effort that was required? No, they're they're both both extremely hard, and um, but for different reasons. Yeah, like the Giro was very hard because of the Ifosis and fans and uh, and everything else, and also the there was some very very bad weather in the Dolomites. Um, very hard, and also division between the team. I only had yeah. one teammate, Eddie Shippers, That's riding with me, and the others only rode with me the last day when they saw that Fizzantini was cooked, and that I was going to bring home the the nest of uh, of uh, Lear at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and they wanted their share, of course, you know. So of course, let's be- let's better better ride for Stephen because Stephen can win the Giro, and you might think of us, you know, and share the money. Whereas if we don't ride for him. Um, and Stephen wins, well, then he won't uh, share the money with us. So the very last day up in Tepila, the team wrote for me. <laughs> but um, after that stage, then after the Giro, I went home, and I was just so, so, so cooped. And my brain was cooped from all the, the media and all the turbulence with the Tifosnies and the, and the people. Like I, had to, I was locked in my room after every stage um, and basically out of my room. Um, I couldn't go down and eat at the restaurant with my teammates because, uh, well, they're very hostile, you know? Yeah. And, um, and they were afraid then my mechanic looked after my bike, um, you, you specifically because they were afraid of someone sabotaging my bike on me. Um, they were afraid then the food, like my master was making me food for me because they were afraid that somebody might try and poison me. God. So, um, and, uh, and of course uh, I was, uh, after the finish line every day, I was whisked away um, to the, the doping control and then on then to the uh, on then to my hotel. So you know, extremely extremely frustrating, huh? But um, uh, and also like I only like after say day two, I I finally got myself onto I, I burst into the um, live television set uh, on, on day two or the second day after me getting the jersey, okay. um, to basically explain to the television presenter and to the um, to the public what actually happened. Because Vizantini had given his version, which wasn't, wow. you know, it was his version, of course, seen yeah. by himself, whereas I attacked him, which I didn't attack him. I, I repeat myself, I just went faster than him down the descent. But um, 
he kept saying I attacking him. Of course, of course, the the, the, the Italian media kept picking up on it because it was good, good, um, uh, good. Um, oh, it's good TV. Come good, yeah. good TV, and yeah. you know, it was always a big fight, and you know, it sold lots of papers and made great drama, drama you know. Yeah. So it was great, but um, but at the same time, then uh, you know, I was getting very hostile. Where I was climbing the climbs, and there was people. Um, uh, they take a, a mouthful of uh, of rice, yeah. and then as I was coming towards them, take a mouthful of red wine and spit it at me. Oh, so I was finishing the finish line, you know, terrible, you know, terrible state. And people suddenly you know, get punched at me, so they had to get police motorcycles to ride outriders on the, on the climbs to keep the people back from me. So they were trying to reach in at me. So um, it got very, very hostile. So the Giro, for that reason, was extremely exhausting. So um, uh, after I decided to just to, you know, take a back seat, don't talk to any journalists or or, or don't kind of do any kind of, not, 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 not talk to them, but no kind of, no traveling, um, just stay at home and uh, recover maximum uh, mentally. Yeah. Because I felt that if I was, went to the tour, if I was eighty uh, percent, say, uh, physically fit, and and one hundred percent mentally fit, then I could still still do a good tour. Where if I went to Tour de France and I was the country, like one hundred percent physically fit and only eighty percent mentally fit, that when the crunch came in the tour, I might just uh, mightn't have it. So I wanted to recover maximum. So that's what I that's what I did, and I. Um, but then I knew then by going to tour. I had to mark an imprint straight away. So that's why I finished third in the prologue and because I didn't want people saying, well, you know, Roach has won the Giro, but he's exhausted after it. And, you know, so I want to kind of, you know, drive a point home that, listen, guys, you know, I'm still here, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's, that's the way my tour was, was based around that. It was, uh, you know, the I, I pinpointed uh, certain days that for me, those days had to be there. Like the, the first prologue, then there's a team time trial, then there was the individual time trial into Futuroscope, which I won. Then there was the um, the first mountain stage. So you know, I, I calculated my whole tour on on individual days, rather than having it. It was like a twenty six day tour, but rather than having a twenty six day tour, I, I basically broke it down into individual days. You know. Yeah. So that uh, so that I was just just kind of in between those days, I was basically hiding, and um, and hoping just kind of to recover, not to lose out on any one day. Um, Try not to um, try not to uh, uh, miss a break. Try not to fall off. You know yeah. that was my main concern of those days. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so I was... Uh... You know, it was a different, different kettle of fish, you yeah. know, but it was um, like the the, the the tour was different, exhausting because of the pressure as well, because of the yeah. media pressure, especially after winning the Giro, you know? Well, yeah, taking... So, um, made it more difficult. Taking all that mental pressure into it has got to be, had to have been absolutely crushing. Um, yeah. In terms of, it, now, kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, since you've retired... And the sport has definitely changed. We could probably both agree on that. Um, some cases for the better, some cases for the worse. Um, in your opinion, what what changes have you seen that have been the most dramatic, and and what excites you, what scares you in terms of where cycling's headed? Um, I think it's it's a lot more in one sense uh, glamorous. There's a lot more television coverage. Yeah. Uh, 
the the bigger sponsors are there um the riders are being um treated like professionals um in that they the bigger budgets bigger money uh the entourage is is uh, it's much more sleek much more you know much more professional um you know there's you know certain things like you know i don't dislike is the radios race radios because um you can you can talk about it all night and still not come to an agreement on it but for me the um the race radios has killed a lot of uh a lot of the suspense in races you know speaking about my my stage with the Giro that wouldn't have happened if it had been race radio um the stage I collapsed in Tour de France in the Plania yeah. wouldn't have happened if I had race radio because I backed off I thought I, I thought that guy was still you know still you know minute of the rough road whereas um I, I buried myself and finished four seconds behind him yeah. So if I had known I was getting coming close at him, I'd have backed off, and maybe it wouldn't have collapsed in the finish line. And that whole thing, we talk about it over and over and over again, you know. Yeah. So um, and then then the other was like even another more painful um uh, uh event was the Liège Bastogne in '87, where I was coming into the finish with Claude Riquillon, and we were the strongest guys in the race, and we um. We forgot the race from behind us, and we were watching each other in the final 5K. And Marino Argentine came from behind, and and as I was launching the sprint with 200 meters to go, Argentine came past us and won the race. You know where it happened, race rated that that day, that wouldn't happen either. But people still talk about it today. Yeah. So I mean, the race raiders have destroyed a lot of things. Um, I do believe that they that they have an advantage uh, when riders puncture or when they have when they fall off that kind of stuff. Okay. And maybe uh, for race radio, with all these new um, road up road up skills we have on the road now, I think it's very important the riders know uh, going to small towns if there's kind of you know uh, water on the road, if there's these um, these big jumps on the road, or if there's bad roadworks or something. The, um, the, uh, the the riders must know this, but this can come from race radio tour. It hasn't got to come from team cars. Yeah. So. I think it's actually um, having a two-way radio system between my manager and the car and the riders has taken a lot of the suspense out of the racing. I think also the watt meters, the watt meters have changed so much because everyone's going on their, yeah. you know, it's going on the on the revs yeah. and the watts uh, per kilo, you know. So which does actually change a lot as well because riders back off before blowing, you know, which is good in a way because this means they're they're you know they're looking after the body maybe more. But um, and it's great for training, I think. But for racing, I think the these things, you know, they should be uh, maybe uh, no one should be should be taken off because they are an advantage. But they have changed the whole um, um, image of, uh, of of cycling and, and racing. Uh. Yeah, it does take a lot of the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the drama away from it. We're we're losing some yeah. of those things. It does, but you know, it's all going forward. I think, and yeah. it's, it's very easy to kind of throw stones at it and say it's not good. Um, it all has its advantages, like as regards the, the training, that kind of stuff. You know, there's an awful lot more at yeah. stake now than it was in our days. So all these things are all beneficial to everybody. But um, I think it has changed uh, the image of the of the sport. But in the, at the end of the day, you know, the um, the riders and themselves, they, they they make the race at the end of the day. So um, yeah. and um, but in, in one sense also, we use the race to win or a podium, you know. Whereas, because of the the value now of a top ten in Tour de France, the value of you know first French rider, value of uh, in terms of media coverage, uh, that's also changed a lot the the image of the race because people will be people will be uh, competing really really hard now even for top ten placing or a first French guy or a first Irish guy, or best rider on my team, yeah. uh, best team, you know. And there's so many different kind of classifications now going on within the race. That also changes the, the the face of the race, you know. Yeah. But so, that's all. That's all about going forward. It's modern cycling. You got to move on with the times as well, you know. And and you you know you're speaking of the the cleaning up of the site of the sport. We can't talk about the sport without that dark side of the sport. And with that money, yeah. with the attention, with the pressure, and all those types of things, um, do you think that we're on our way to a to a cleaner sport overall? Uh, definitely, yeah. It's um, you know. I've always said, you know, the the, the sport or the, the doping that and the problems issues we had in cycling, yeah. um, you know, it's not just unfortunately a, a cycling problem; it's a culture problem yeah. and it's a society problem. 
and you know it's it's very unfair that cycling should be should be footing or should have footed for years the bill of um um dope testing and and developments in uh for to find help find out new drugs and everything else you know um cycling was the one that actually because of the 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 the, the problem in the sport everybody kept pointing out oh, cycling and cycling and cycling and cycling kept saying well we aren't the only ones but at the end of the day everybody was turning off the television because cycling was the only one that's getting the finger pointed at for, for doping. So, you know, I think that the doping thing should be a something that's a global thing, that it's in all sports, no matter what uh, people say, it's in all sports. So it's in football, rugby, motor racing, golf, tennis, yeah. uh, basketball. It's in all sports. So why, why don't you just put a, and a lot of sports a lot more richer than cycling? So why not kind of um, put into a basket um, a certain percentage of turnover from all the sports, all the revenue, revenue from all the sports, and put into a pool and help um, eradicate sport from doping, uh, eradicate doping for once and for all. It's very difficult when it's only depending on one budget, or initially one budget, which is the cycling budget, to, um, to, uh, to develop the techniques and everything else to, to, to trace down the the new new products and, and to and to with, with the sport of uh, of people trying to cheat. So, you know, it has been a very dark side of but I'm I'm very confident that, you know, there's there's um a lot happening over the last couple of years, a lot more happening in the next couple of years. The generations have changed. Um unfortunately you're always gonna get someone out there trying to do better or, or cheating. But whereas before you had an awful major percentage of the peloton before um cheating um, now you've got a very, very minor part yeah. of the peloton, and it's getting less and less as we, as you go on. It's getting less and less uh, because um, there's a there's the, um, the, the, the 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 doping bans. There's the detection there. There's the education system in there as well, trying to tell young guys from an early age you don't cheat. Whereas those young guys, of course, become uh, seniors and they become professionals, and they um, and because they haven't been introduced to a doping culture, they can do without it. Um, and for them, in their own mind, it's wrong. Rather than years ago, people saying, "But you're, everybody's doing it," and that's the problem. Yeah. Before, people were saying, well, "Everyone's doing it," so I can't win if I don't dope. And that's where we all went wrong because um, the, uh, the 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 system got out of hand, and, and um, there wasn't the controls weren't there. The um, the uh, the doctors and and scientists were all about you know trying to find new medication or new drugs to help the athletes go faster and um, or, or further. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very, very healthy at all. Whereas now I'm very, very confident that um, you know, we are on the right track at that end. Um, unfortunately now there's the, the problem now with the, the, the mechanical side of it, the engine, oh the, the motor God. side of it yeah. now, you know, mechanical side of it. But hopefully now that'll be taken very, very serious and, um, and it'll be kind of you know, stopped in its tracks before we have any more inc- incidents like that. I hope so, because that's one of those moments where I just want to put my my face in my hand and just cry when I hear about now we're actually dealing with motors on bikes. And and you you talk about the fact that riders are more riders are getting caught, which means maybe things are getting better. We we didn't hear about riders getting caught um, when this first started as a problem. Um, and obviously, you have to have some sort of optimism. Your son. Uh, Nicholas is is a pro cyclist with Team Sky. Your nephew Dan is a cyclist with Edix Quickset. Did you encourage them into the profession? Was this something that was, yeah, you should go do this. You should follow in Dad's footsteps, or was it just kind of magically happened by itself? It happened by itself, but <laughs> in, in, in direct, I suppose. For me, it was very important the kids did sports, um, and of course, you can imagine how the life I was when they turned to cycling. And um, Nicholas was a very, very good footballer, very good uh, rugby player, an incredibly good athlete. And, you know, one day he started cycling and, uh, and he came along and said, Daddy, I want to, I want to pack in school, I want to ride a bike. <laughs> so I said, OK, listen, here's the, here's the deal. Um, you can come work for me. Um, you work, uh, say, when you can during the summer. And the off-season, you work 18 hours a day. And you, uh, you fill in for my staff holidays, you fill in for me when I'm away, and I'll give you one year plus one year. And that means is you're 19 now, so I'll, I'll finance you for one year. And if at the end of the year you don't go pro, 
but I feel you've done a good job, you're, you're dedicated and you're doing things properly, I will help you a second year, but there won't be a third year. Wow. So look to yourself. If you want to go down this road of uh, um, stopping school um, and be a cyclist, this is the, these are the conditions. And he jumped at the conditions, and he did a, did a great job for me in the hotel that I was running at the time, and making a, a great job, you know. And he was very, very professional and, and very dedicated in what he was doing. And then in the summer, then he was riding his bike and getting results. And at the end of the season, he got a pro uh, pro contract with uh, Coffee Dates. So I didn't push him, but for me, the important thing was he rode his bike. And then my other son, I have two other sons, Alex and Florian. Alex is uh, 17 now. Okay. And he's riding his bike now as a junior, second year junior. He's got an incredible class. We don't know how far he go, but um, he's got an incredible class. Um, my younger son, he's uh, 16, Florian. Uh, he unfortunately had a bit of illness, but um, he'll never be a racing cyclist. But uh, he loves loves cycling, and we go out cycling together, and he's a, an incredible kid altogether. But you know, I never push any of them. But they all they all enjoy cycling, and it's great to be able to kind of ride with them all the time, you know. God, something in the blood. I don't know. I I didn't go into my father's profession just because I didn't want to be in insurance. But <laughs> to, to, yeah, to, well, <laughs> that's yeah, impressive. Well, I mean, it's, it's it's very hard. Like he must have gonna take a hat off to Nicholas as well because at the level he's at. Because you can imagine yeah. um, going into into the sport that I just left, and um, him going in as a kind of a normal normal rider. You can imagine the. The, the looks he got from certain people saying, oh, he's, uh, you know, everything was, every, every, if he'd been going to basketball, yeah. everybody would say, what an incredible athlete. Yeah. Whereas here he, is, here he is going to cycling, they say, no, he doesn't time try like his dad, doesn't climb like his dad, he's better, better looking him than his dad. You know, <laughs> comparing, comparing all this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, um, so it's very, very hard for him. And I always said to Nicholas, like, you've chosen, you know, the hard way by going into my sport. But, you know, I really appreciate it. But the, the best thing you do is, you know, doors will open for you because of who you are. But it's up to you to walk in. Yeah. So, um, before the door closes. So, you know, make the most of it, the good, the, the, the good points of it. The downside is people are going to be comparing you to myself. But um, if you're intelligent enough, you know, take it on your, on your shoulders and, and, and appreciate it and, um, and get on with it. You know, you'll never be like me. You know, there's a, you'll never be, I'll never be like you. Yeah. You know, you are what you are, you are who you are, and the until you get your own identity, people are always going to make reference to me. So um, once you know that, you know, you know, put the head down and go for it. Yeah, that's a good attitude to take. So so what keeps you going? What uh, what are you, you involved with? Obviously with uh, Stephen Roche Cycling, the, the company and things like that. What what keeps Stephen Roche busy these days? Winning. <laughs> Still winning. <laughs> you know, I am, I, um, you know, I am... Um, I um for me it's uh it's about achieving achievement it's about um you know doing things 100% uh, and 100% properly um professionally like I'm 21 years now organizing my cycling holidays in New York Stephen Rose cycling holidays and um you know we're, we're we're still going and for me it's uh, uh another client or a repeat client for me it's um it's a, it's a win it's a win you know yeah. it's uh I get great satisfaction out of um, people coming, and as I say, the important thing is you come. It's not important you come back, but it's important you go away having after having a good time with us, because um, not everybody can come back, not everybody wants to come back. But the important thing is, and I'd be very disappointed if somebody left unhappy. I'd be kind of you know wanting to know why, and I'd be straight away uh, trying to make things right. Yes. So you know, at a very very high level of um, of, uh, of tolerance in that. You know, the customer service, because for me, it's about, um, it's all about experience. People come to my camps, they're not going to top-level racing cyclists, they're, they're enthusiasts yeah. who come out there with five levels, four to five levels every day, uh, two ride captains in each group, um, different levels, we find your level, um, you ride along some beautiful countryside in Mallorca every day, um, different, uh, different ride, nice coffee stops. Um, it's all about the friendliness of the whole thing, the experience. Yeah. We're there to ride your bike. The security is priority with us. We make sure that um, we're following car. Make sure that um, uh, you, you have your experience in the most comfortable position as possible. So that that's what makes me tick today. Is the um, it's sharing my passion 
with all these people. And like I said, it's not like um, I get fed up talking about 87. You know, cycling, my life revolves so much around cycling, yeah. um, even today. And um, like I'm, I spend a lot of time in New York with my clients. I spend like uh, maybe eight, I see 80% of my, my, my guests, I, call them, I don't call them clients, I call them guests. I spend, I see about 80% of them um, because I make a point of uh, it's my camp, it's my name on her, it's my brand. And um, I make a point of being there and, um, and uh, for the people to share a bit of time with them. I do a Q&A with them. I show them a nine-minute video of my career to show them who I was. And because some people are, as I say, some people are kind of old enough maybe to have Alzheimer's and I forget what I, what I did. <laughs> uh, some, are, some are new to the sport and um, uh, know that I organize great cycling holidays but didn't know I was a cyclist before. So it's nice to kind of... Um, show them who I was and what I did, you know? Yeah. So um, that's where I get my kicks. It's uh, sharing my passion with all these people that come to my camps and also anybody I meet, you know, even when I'm on the Tour de France with I'm a, an ambassador for Skoda. Yeah. So I, I know I meet a lot of people on the Tour de France and it's sharing, genuinely sharing my passion with genuine, enthusiastic people. Are there any other riders from the racing days that you are still in contact with, have friendships with? Well, I've just actually employed a guy called Dennis Roux, who's a French guy who was actually, you know, uh, strangely enough, um, he was actually in the stage of La Plania uh, all the way up the climb. He was on my wheel. I finished fourth and collapsed. He finished fifth. Uh, and I was working with me as a as my manager on site in, uh, in Palma. Really? So uh, he's working with me now for the last few months. But my, my good friend, Eddie Shippers, my, my right-hand man during my career, we, we still um, see each other now and again. And, um, you know, when I, we do some events now here in France every year, there's uh, where we, we meet up and it's amazing the amount of kind of, uh, like, you know, Milk, uh, um, Fondriest, uh, a lot of these guys all come around because it's a way of kind of, you know, keeping the past very, very, very much in the present. And even though, you know, we don't live on, on what happened yesterday, but it's nice to see these people, yeah. see what they're doing today, um, you know, and, because, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, we often see each other at weddings. And now, unfortunately, it's sometimes at funerals. Yeah. <laughs> and you always say, and, and so often say, unfortunately, say, well, oh, you know, I always meant to, I meant to kind of go down and see him. I meant to call him. And yeah. now it's too late, you know. So it's, it's one good reason to kind of, when you get the opportunity to have the, when we have the opportunities to, for big meetings or where everyone kind of comes along, it's amazing the amount of people that actually come, come along because they want to kind of just see how the kind of our generation are still ticking. Wow. And so now if, if people want to get involved with, with the camps and things like that, where can they find you and where can they get in contact? And, um, and um, com is the website. Yep. That's the best one. Okay. So you get on there and you can, uh, you can, you can, um, email us then on the, onto the website and we get back to you straight away. We have like, you know, an incredible clientele, uh, you know, international clientele, um, American, Canadian, French, Irish, English. We just had the New York Cycling Club over with us, and the president was there, of the cycling club there as well, and there's about a group of eight of them have been with me 10 times in the last 15 years. Wow. And um, this year they brought out 26 people from the New York Cycling Club. So we have, you know, a great kind of following from America. We have a lot of Canadians out there. We have um, a lot of French, a lot of English, because England being so close. A lot of Irish, because I'm Irish. But we have, say, between 50 and 80 people every week wow. on the camp. So the good thing with the camps is it's not kind of Saturday, Saturday or Sunday, Sunday. You can arrive when you want and stay as long as you like. So you can stay, you know, a long weekend or you get, depending on flights. Uh, if you're coming from the UK, for example... Or you come from America, like, you know, a week could be too short, so you can say 10 days, you know. There's no, um, there's no limit, uh, upper or lower limit, as the number of days you can say. That's the one thing which is very, um, very important. And um, like I said, the website is uh, stephenloach.com. Well, that's where I reached out to you to get a hold of you and things like that. And um, There you are. Yeah. And so that's I love the concept of being able to come or go as long as you need. You know, if you realize, oh, my God, uh, yeah. I need to... I need to stay here until they kick me out. Maybe you can. <laughs> yeah, well, that happens. That does happen as well. You know, you can, when guys bring home and send me, the wife tells them, uh, oh, uh, 
it's, it's raining here and the sun's shining on Mallorca. Well, can I say next day or two, you know? <laughs> but um, but more serious, like, I mean, the English people, for example, they, they are very lucky with, with um, EasyJet and, uh, and the low-cost flights from the UK. They can, they can they ring up on a Thursday and say, do you have room small? If you get it, get it the right flight, of course, because sometimes, you know, um, uh, flights are much cheaper on a Wednesday than they are on a Saturday, for example. Yeah. So, or sometimes they're on a last-minute deal. So we basically keep it open so that, of course, subject to availability, of course, you know. But um, we, uh, we open it up now so that people can, can come when they want and stay as long as they like. Coming from America or Canada, for example, for one week sometimes can be a bit, a bit short, maybe. Yeah, short, yeah. Whereas staying 10 days, you get two weekends, it makes it more of a, more of a holiday. All right. Hey, so before I let you go, is there any anybody you've got your ear to the ground in terms of what's happening in, in, uh, with the sport? Um, any any riders you think are up and coming? Are we in for a shift at the at the top end of the peloton in terms of our leaders? All those guys, twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, twenty five year olds, like from Garpan Gardaen, Quintana, Pino, Barde, yeah. all these guys. Uh, for me, they're they've got something else, something else and something to offer. Because they um they, they want to win and they aren't just riding for a for a podium, which is something which has shifted in two years. We get these guys now coming in looking to win races rather than coming to be the first behind from, and um, that's very important. So I think next couple of years we're going to have some fabulous tours, fabulous classics, some fabulous racing because of all these guys. And um, so you know I'm I'm very very excited about the the future of cycling. Good. I'm glad to hear that, especially coming from somebody with your history and your your love of the sport. So the website is stephenrochecycling.com. you got to go over there. I'm looking exactly. at it right now, and you've got all kinds of uh, things set up for the tours, holidays, all kinds of beautiful things that are going on over there. Stephen, I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and being a part of the show. Thank you very much. Much, much appreciated. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to kind of go on about the past, but um, I can see yourself how enthusiastic you are. It's been a, it's been a great, um, great couple of minutes there uh, sharing the passion together. Well, good, yeah, and I hope I, I love hearing that we're going in someplace positive too, because it can get tough. You can, it can get depressing sometimes from this end. <laughs> it, it can, it can get depressed, you know. But I think that you know, it's, um, you got to look at it on a, on, a, on a big scale as well. I think yeah. looking at you always get people knocking the sports, and those people very rarely kind of can push it up very unfortunate i always say journalists should be level-headed and and you know when it's bad say it when it's good say it also and unfortunately i think um some journalists today they don't actually um don't uh they're, they're, they don't want to kind of talk positive about the sport they when it talks negative to get a two or three pages in a, in, a, in a magazine yeah whereas when it's um when it's positive you get a few lines yeah and um you know where our sport is has done an awful lot for um for sport in general that's doping because people, other sports have followed in the procedures that cycling have put in place. Other sports have followed, and because uh, their sports have um, have problems also, even though they don't, they don't admit it, you know. So, um, you know, I think that uh, um, our sport is going forward. It's got an awful lot of potential there, and um, I think that the riders that are coming through at the moment are, you know, they're very, very enthusiastic riders. They're great talents, and. I'm quite confident that there are still some really, really good stories going to be told uh, about the up-and-coming champions over the next couple of years. Good. Just as long as we can get rid of race radios, right? <laughs> well, we've been trying for a long time. We can't get rid of them, you know. So yeah. maybe trying to find somewhere I'm going to find somewhere interfering with them, you know, so that uh, oh boy. doesn't doesn't get through, you know. Because I think it's riders themselves, even they don't like the race radio some of them, you know. But um, for me, I think it's very. It's um, for me, it would be good that the, 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 the rider can talk back to the car and tell us that the sportive had punctured or whatever, yeah. but um, then have race radio in the ear of the rider so every rider gets the same information from radio, radio tour, but not getting any information back from the team car. For me, that would be the best scenario, kind of cutting the things in half, saying, okay, well, okay, race radio, you can't just try and throw it away, you can't abolish it, yeah. but let's just kind of, you know, modernize it or, or modify it so that Everybody is uh, everybody is happy that the the punter watching it is happy that the the teams that are kind of everyone's happy with the with the, with the outcome rather than kind of having the punter uh, getting frustrated because of the fact that um, the fact that he feels that the race radius is trying to race because he this rider's been told that to back off because uh, the peloton's coming or 
vice versa, you know? Yeah. So um, I think it's, um, we're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to get rid of it altogether. But I think that um, we can modify this. But, you know, a very sneaky feeling. We ain't going to get rid of those radios, huh? <laughs> You're, amen to that. Yeah, so. Well, cool, yeah. man. Uh, I, once again, thank you so much for your time. It sounds like something's going on in the background. you got something to do, so. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Hey, I'll Okay, talk. great. Thanks very much for your time. You bet. Thank you. Take care. <sighs> I almost need a cigarette after that. Did you guys hear any of the giddiness in my voice? Did I sound cheesy? Did I sound like it was a big deal? I'm trying to sound professional here, you guys. There you go. We got another show coming for you here next week. Been trying to keep to my promise of keeping a show with you guys every week, every Sunday or every Monday. I think I've been posting them on Sundays. It's Sunday when I'm recording this little blurb to finish up the show. Um, I got a new guest for you guys next week. I know I got at least the next three, four weeks lined up, so it's going to just keep coming good. Um, keep the reviews coming, and um, let me know what you guys think. Drop me a note, Patrick at packfiller.com, or on the Facebook, or on the Twitters. Thanks once again to all of our sponsors, including ManCan. Oh, ManCan. Click on the link on packfiller.com. Road ID, those cool bracelets, not the Livestrong ones. Oh, was that harsh? And also thanks to our friends at the Sufferfest. I can't go through life without thanking the Sufferfest. They've been with us for a long time. And what a loyal group and following they do have. I'm not bitter, but I didn't win a prize in the Tour of Sufferlandria drawing again. That's four tours of Sufferlandria, and I haven't won a fucking thing. Oh, there, I said the word. Now i got to start all over again. I'm going to become a better person. I promise. I'll talk to you guys next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.